Welcome to the Angie Spoke Podcast. Today, we are airing an episode of an interview that we did on the Get Paid Podcast with Clara Pelletro. This interview is our entire story from how we first met in a room full of 600 dude bros to starting Namastream, which is now marvelous, to massive and unbelievable growth through COVID and surviving, and to our bank collapsing this past spring. We've never told our story in this way from end to end. And when we listened back to it, we thought, you know, it's kind of a good story and we think we should bring it to our listeners. So it is a little bit longer than our normal episodes, but it's worth it. And I think it works because Claire is a really good interviewer and she pulled out a lot of stories that we wouldn't necessarily tell on our own podcast. So enjoy. Here's our story of Jenny, myself, and Marvelous. Welcome to the Get Paid Podcast. I'm Claire Pelletro, and this is the show that's dedicated to giving you an honest look at the reality of running an online business. Basically, I ask people how much money they make, how much they pay themselves, and how much they have to spend to make that kind of money. We're talking real numbers here. Plus, what is the emotional cost, the mental cost to run these kinds of businesses? I've been working on online marketing behind the scenes of seven and eight figure businesses since 2013. And I kid you not when I say I have seen it all. Right now, I have a lot of questions for the people who are making it work. Sandy Connery and Jenny Barcelos, welcome to the Get Paid Podcast. Thank you, Claire. Claire. We're so excited to be here. Again, (laughs) we just talked for an hour and I wasn't recording and it was some of the best radio that has ever been created. That's all right. Stories are still here. We got them. I am so lucky that the two of you are so wonderful. That's what I want to say. So (laughs) let's, let's get into it. Would you tell the good listeners, Jenny, we'll start with you. One, what are your pronouns? And two, how do you get paid? Sure. I am Jenny Barcelos. My pronouns are she, her, hers, and I get paid from Marvelous Software. Marvelous is the most stunning, stylish creator platform on earth. We're an online teaching platform originally created in the wellness industry, but now serving creators of all types. Okay. Awesome. And Sandy? She, her, hers as well. And uh, I used to get paid by Marvelous and I now get paid by our coaching company, which is And She Coaching. Okay, great. So take us back. How did you two start working together? We each had our own individual careers. I'm in Canada. She's in the United States. And we each had some unhappiness with what we were doing and wanted to change. I was really looking for something to scale. And I love the idea of like in quotations, passive income. I heard a podcast. Jenny heard the same podcast about a course coming up that was teach you how to create a software company. So I enrolled, she enrolled, you know, we didn't know each other at the time. We each created a software company with paying clients in six months at the live event, the end of the celebrating the six months we gathered in Colorado and we met in person for the first time. And there was 600 people in that course. There was six of us that started companies with paying clients in six months. We were the only females. We just glommed on to each other. And I think we've just like literally been side by side talking every day ever since that day. Do you know if that was the first cohort of that course? I'm just thinking about that. Second or third. Yeah. Like 
we're very extrinsically motivated people. And the promise of the course was for those of you that actually finish the course and fulfill the objective, which is to have a software company created with paying customers by the end of six months, we'll bring you to a mansion together for a retreat with our team. So that was the previous cohort. We saw these video clips of like, 15 people in a mansion in the hills somewhere, like sitting around a fireplace, like talking about business. And I was extremely motivated. Like there was no way in hell I was dropping five grand on a program and not going to be in that mansion at the end. Me so too. I, think I watched that same. fireplace, that those conversations. I watched that video. I'm like, I'm going to be there. I'm going to be there. So it was they only do it the that way. six of you. That no, came. it was all 600. Like they so changed the rules. So then they the changed the rules. Oh. That they let everybody come. <laughs> mm. But you two found each other there. Oh, I didn't no, know her. No, no, Whoa. no. It was. It ended up not being a mansion. It was like a university dormitory in Colorado Springs. And she found me because I had just gone through a miscarriage, actually, and I was sobbing in like the hallway. And that's how we met, met each other. Is she was like coming to comfort me. So again, like just putting that added fact into the backdrop of like we're in this six hundred person event that's like very dude bro heavy like young guys building tech and like we're sort of these two women not only two of the successful women in the program but also really supporting one another and bonding over this experience wow okay so you bond over that you're at the event you both have separate companies at this point how yes. did you end up working together so we decided at that point i think zoom was like just invented and we we decided like, let's stay in touch and like help each other because this course taught us how to get a company off the ground and then did not teach us anything after that. So we both had tech companies that were like launched and we had no idea what to do. How do we grow them? How do we sustain them? Like, let's stay in touch. And like, I think we set up like a weekly Zoom session. So we decided like, let's just be kind of accountability partners and do that. So we did that for a year a little over a year. And then my company was growing, like it was growing faster than I could handle it, which is maybe a good thing, but also a hard thing when you don't know what you're doing. I had applied to a startup accelerator in Seattle, Washington, and gotten accepted on the condition that I have co-founders. And I was so confused because I had learned how to start and grow a software company by myself. And that was what I was going for with just sort of like part-time contractors. And here I was having to build a team. So I was like, well, I don't know who would do that. And so I asked Sandy, I was like, that's the only person I would want to work with me. <laughs> and so I, I asked Sandy to come aboard and somehow she agreed. <laughs> Yeah. And I remember the night really clearly because with the company that I started, it was in a very small niche. So that it was never going to be a million dollar company. And I was so jealous of Jenny's company because she had this cool like wellness. And I thought, oh, why didn't I think of that? And I was making pizza for my son and I was like carrying my laptop, you know, awkwardly on my arm with Zoom on. So I was talking to her and trying to hear her, but the smoke alarm was going off because I burnt the pizza because we were having this conversation about like me joining her company. And I just said, yes, yes. Like, like I hardly had to think about it. It was like, yes, let's just totally do this because I can do both companies because the other one was not going to grow quickly or very big. So that is how we started uh, together with, at the time it was called Nomastream with the Nomastream software. Okay, great. So you have a co-founder, so you can mm. do the accelerator. What was the experience of the accelerator like? A startup accelerator, it's its own beast. And back in the end of 2015, early 2016 is when we did ours. It was like 
very hard to be honest because a lot of the other companies in our cohort, I think there were nine companies and there was one other female founded company in there. Um, a lot of the companies had no paying customers. They ha- did not have product market fit. They hadn't been validated. And so we were sort of like mixed in with these other founders and we were constantly being taught how to pitch to investors, both to VC firms and angel investors, and then going and doing that constantly. And so as a female founder, fundraising carries its own particular brand of trauma. I found the experience very troubling just because of the kinds of things people were saying to me in those pitches. Like there was a lot of like very kind or seemingly kind and positive feedback, a lot of sort of like head padding, like, oh, my wife does yoga. That's so good for you. Like, that's so great that you made something. And I was like, yeah, it's a tech company. It's not a yoga company. (laughs) So there was a lot of like sort of explaining and justifying the fact that we were the fastest growing technology company in the cohort. We were actually like making money. None of that was really acknowledged. So that was sort of the backdrop of it. I also remember very distinctly one day where I pitched to a group of angel investors and I had made um, little business cards on Moo.com, like those little teeny tiny ones that have your picture on them and just like your website and your email and your company name on the back. And when I walked out of that pitch, a man followed me out of the room and handed me back my card with like my face crossed out in black pen and the word hate written on it. Like all the breath went out of my body. And I just said, I'm sorry, why are you handing me this? And he just said, if you want to raise money, you need to be smarter than making cards like this. The fact that you make cards like this, they're so useless, shows me that you're not worthy of investment. And I just like, I just tried really hard not to like emotionally react in that moment. And I got out of that room and went, you know, went back to the accelerator office, got to my desk and called Sandy and was like, just exploded into tears. So that's like one memory. Over and over and over and (laughs) over again. Mm -hmm. Uh, The one time that I was there in person and we were in, we were presenting something to the people running the accelerator. And I remember one of the guys, the, he said with all kindness and love in his heart, he said to us, like, this was his best advice. He's like, you guys should probably get a male on your team and diversify a little bit. And I remember like blinking and looking over his shoulder. It was a glass wall behind him and the rest of the accelerator groups who were out there, the whole cohort. And it was just a sea of guys, sea of guys, other than that one group with the with the other woman. Everyone was all male teams. The whole teams. Yeah. All guys. And we were told, like, we were the ones making money. We had money coming in the door every single month, but we were told to diversify and get a guy on our team. And I was just that like- Nobody would fund us because we lacked diversity. It's like, what the actual hell is happening, right? Over and over again. So this is where my coaching, I think, started because I had to just emotionally support Jenny through this because I wasn't there all the time. Every day she called me in tears with another story like that. That's the number one thing that I have heard when women are talking about trying to raise money. They always told you need to have a man on their team. But I have to ask you to just revisit this one thing that you said before, Jenny, about your wedding ring. Yeah. So I went to a meetup with other female founders during this time. There's in Seattle, it's like a hotbed of tech and not quite Silicon Valley, but still a lot of companies coming out of Seattle. 
And one of the women just said, like, you've got to sort of gauge who you're pitching to to decide whether or not to wear your wedding ring, because certain investors, especially kind of in the VC space, are very hard on women who have children and women who are married. And so you just like want to try to gauge whether you should wear your ring or not. So it's very common to be asked like, are you married? Do you have children? And women are sort of held to this standard of like, if you have children, then how are you going to give yourself fully to your company and your business? And lots of guys who are in the startup world are married with kids or have kids, and they're not asked those same questions, right? And so like the fact that I would have to think about like, should I take my rings off or not before going into a room was so foreign to me. And I had a, a toddler at the time, like I had like a she was two turning three, I think, when we were doing this. So it was like, what? <laughs> How is that relevant to anything? And shouldn't it be like an accomplishment that I started this with a baby in my arms and got this thing? Like, I think we were bringing in 30K with no investment. Is that a liability to someone? Do you think that any of this kind of thing has gotten any better? Like, I don't know if you've tried to raise money since then, but do you think any of this has changed it's not better statistically it's the same uh-huh. investment in women run companies went down last year like it's 2% of venture funding goes to women i mean i i can like be on my soapbox about this all day i don't think it's meaningfully changed i don't think it will i think there's a tremendous amount of bias whether it's unconscious or conscious where you know investors are funding people who act and look like on paper Mark Zuckerberg. And that is literally the world that we live in. And then I also think that what I've seen happen in the last few years is like women having like the novel ideas. In our case, like we were the first to market with what we did. We've had a tremendous number of copycats like literal copycats of what we do that go into Y Combinator or places like that and then walk out with venture funding. And it's just been astonishing to look at that and to see the differences and how those founders are treated versus how we're treated. In 2022, we did look at raising some more money and we had we talked to talk to one person and was interested, like very interested, like very close. And then they said no and they turned around and funded a company that was exactly like ours. Stanford boy. That's when it was like, okay, there's just no way you can win this. There's no way. Oh my gosh. Did you walk away from that uh, accelerator with having raised any capital? So we got $30,000 from participating. We accepted the first tranche, which like there were three tranches of $30,000. We could have taken on the following tranches, but we would have had to give up more equity of our company. We decided not to. We soft circled about a half a million dollars from all female investors. And then we hemmed and hawed for a few months and ultimately decided to walk away from taking that money and Sandy called me from a blueberry field in British Columbia one day and said, Jenny, let's not do it. Let's walk away. So we walked away. What happened in that blueberry field? I was literally picking blueberries in the most beautiful field in BC, in the middle of BC. And we had to make a decision because um, we were literally, like as she said, months talking, like every day talking about the pros and the cons and should we or should we. And it just occurred to me like, this feels so awful. Like every day we are so damn unhappy and we're crying every day and we can't make a dis. I'm like, no, let's just stop. Let's just say no and walk away. And it was so risky at that point because that's the only way you anyone re- made a tech company is by working with venture or angels. You had capital behind you. 
there was no very few bootstrap examples. Just remember saying, thinking like, it can't be, I don't want to live like this. I don't want to be this unhappy or this confused or this angry all the time. And so we decided to, we took Amy Porterfield's course. We did every single thing that she said, and we ran four webinars and we raised $60,000 in those webinars. And that was the exact amount of money that we needed to rebuild the platform because Jenny had started it on a WordPress site and we needed to scale it and you know to grow. It couldn't do what we needed it to do. So we uh, rebuilt the platform from that 60K. So we really self-funded in that moment. And I will let Jenny say what we sold in that in those webinars. Yeah. So ultimately we decided to walk away from that first round of funding because our lead investor wanted us to all be in the same office in downtown Seattle. And our team, our tiny team was all over the world really. And so Sandy was Canadian and there was no way she was moving her family to Seattle. And our designer was in North Carolina and we had our developers in other parts of the world. So we decided, you know, we want to do this on our own terms. Like we have a specific vision for how to build our company. Oh, also the investors wanted us to like open call centers to try to like (laughs) use call centers to get new customers. And we're like, "Mm, that's not really how we see this working. So we wanted the ultimate freedom, like most entrepreneurs to build and run a company the way we wanted. And so, yeah, we took Amy Porterfield's webinar course. Like we should totally be a testimonial for that. And we ran four webinars in two days. We decided to pre-sell annual plans of our software, but then to add in like our own mentorship into those plans to sort of sweeten the deal because we had now amassed some amount of business experience. And we thought like, let's just sweeten the pot and make this offering. Um, And so, yeah, in those four days of webinars, we sold enough money to fund the next stage of development of the platform. And then we realized like, hey, our freedom comes from self-funding this tech company because A, we're going to own it still. Like all these investment opportunities meant giving away huge parts of the company. And it also meant that we had complete control over how to build, how fast to build, and like what kind of company culture we wanted to create. And where I lived. Yeah, where you got to live and where I got to live because I ended up moving to like a cabin in the woods on a remote island. So that wouldn't have worked out very well. Wait, but Sandy, you don't want to come and move to the United States? I love you all, but I do not want to live in America. (laughs) I do love my American friends, but I'm very happy with my health care up here. Yes, I'm happy for you. Okay, so I know we're jumping ahead a little bit, but I want to set the scene for the next part, which is how COVID impacted your business. So tell us uh, around the end of 2019, beginning of 2020, what did the business look like? Around how many customers did you have using, not their end users, but like your customers paying you? I think we had about three to 400 paying clients. It was us, the two of us. We had a part-time employee, Joe, and we had a part-time developer who lived in Portugal. And life was so good. This is exactly what we wanted. We worked at our own pace. We set our own hours. We were making some decent money. Everything was in control. Like Everything was great. It was so good in 2019. But did you have any goals for like what you wanted to do next? We were building like an equivalent of Calendly. That's a whole other story. Yeah, we did. And we had, I mean, we had been growing like steadily, like healthy growth, like 30% growth year over year, like very healthy business growth. And we wanted to continue to do that. I mean, at the end of 2019, sort of reached those 
like that level of like, oh, 50K months were normal. It was like this level of success where I think both of us had been building for years to get to. And we were, um, it was very much like not full time to get that kind of money, right? Like it was also, I was working as an environmental lawyer, part time also. It was just like we made it. That's what we felt like at the end of 2019, early 2020. We're like, yeah, we did it. Like we got to the place, like we're here. Now it's just gravy. <laughs> Mm. Tell the listeners about the week of March 13th. Yeah. So we had just wrapped up a launch of our coaching program, Inner Circle, the continuation of what we learned to do on that webinar years before. We'd had a great launch. We were closing the cart, I think, Monday night. By Wednesday, we saw the world starting to shut down. And so we decided to host just like a free get-together for the wellness industry and for coaches and creators who were getting like their communities were getting shut down. They were put on lockdown and they they had never like done anything online. We're like, let's just do a how to teach online 101. Like what cameras do you use and how do you do it? So we decided like impromptu to put together a little training on that Friday. We posted it up organically, maybe send an email to our list. I, we probably sent one email and then we had like over a thousand people register like immediately for that session. And that Thursday, March 13th is when like the lockdown started to happen in North America. While we did that workshop, which was very informal for us, we're like, these are the kinds of webcams you can use and this is how it works and this is how easy it is. And we did like a two minute demo of Namastream, which was what our software was called at the time. We had people signing up like faster than the software would allow. You know, we went from this sort of like steady growth over the course of a few years to having exponential growth literally within minutes. And we had thousands of people sign up on the weekend of March 13th, which was a big deal. And, and just to remember, like, it's just the two of us and Joe. Like for a hot minute, it was really exciting. Like, oh, look, oh my God, we're making so much money until we go to our inbox, which we use Intercom to manage all the you know, little chat thing that's on software, it just started to fill up with panic, anger. And I understand it because people obviously didn't know then what was happening, but their studios or their clinics or their businesses were being shut down and they had rent to pay and they had staff to pay and they had, you know, and they were freaking out. I just feel like nobody was thinking rationally back then. And, you know, they would like, get in the software and they were like so panicked to figure it out, make their money and start teaching, just like come into the inbox. And they were so mad and so nasty and so scared. And we did have a number of people saying, and we still have those screenshots, like people would say, like, I remember Portland Yoga said, I can pay my staff this week because of you and Jenny. And I appreciate you so much. And I remember just falling because that was so rare. Like it was mostly just the anger and the panic. And again, I understand it, but it was like thousands and thousands of like just people. And then what would happen is there was so many queries back and forth. The software ended up breaking. Like it just literally was a gray screen when you went to that URL. So then it would just fill up more because people just paid us a lot of money so that they could save their business through this hectic time. And it was broken. And so they had students like, I just paid you my membership fee. And like, it's not, you know, it just like snowballed. And so we now had broken software and it was like Sunday night or something. <laughs> we are not developers. So we just had to solve it. And it was a panic and it was awful. And Jenny 
just put SOS out on every social channel that we had. Like, does anyone know Python? Can anyone help us here? We went back to that original course that we took. We went into that Facebook group and Jenny was like, does anybody out there can, this is what's happening, please. So she would like take time to go do that, like make these pleas for help. And I'd be like, I got it. I got the inbox. And I'd just be like, trying to like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. We're trying to get it up. You know, like you can't even type fast enough as, as people are copy and paste the apology, like we're working on it, you know, it was, oh, it was awful. Did you ever just want to like refund yep. everyone's money? Yep. And oh, hundred percent. Like close it, walk out the door. Yeah. We couldn't though, because there was no one else. Like, I think that that's the, I fantasized there, about it. There was a sense of responsibility to the industry. Like we were the first people in the wellness industry to offer an online teaching platform. We had done a lot of the education over the years of saying like, this is the future. Like we had, created all kinds of trainings on videography and film school and like all kinds of things like to prepare the industry. We knew this was coming. Like the the pandemic was really an accelerator of existing trends, right? And so people looked to us. It was fair to me that they were looking to us for support and resources on what to do. Like I remember in that free workshop we did on March 13th, we recommended a web camera and then like instantly it was sold out on Amazon and like every website. So we some of the angry messages were like, we saw your training. I don't know how many people, like five or 6,000 people ended up watching that training. And then we would get these messages of like hate and fury because like the equipment we were recommending was sold out across the internet. And we're like, sorry, like, I'm sorry, you can't buy a webcam. I'm sorry, I told you which one to buy and you can't buy it anymore. Or like people in other countries couldn't buy it. Like just to explain the gravity of this, like we had some of the biggest gyms and yoga studios and fitness instructors, like celebrities reaching out to us. Like this wasn't just like a small group of random people. Like this was like the entire industry. We had more web traffic, I think that weekend than like MindBody Online had because they had no online teaching capacity at that time. Like we were literally the only game in town. Like I consider myself and have for 20 years a futurist. Like I freaking knew this was going to happen. I just didn't know it was going to happen this fast. And so like people looked to us for like how to keep their business alive. And I felt a deep sense of obligation to this industry and to this group of people to do that. And I don't even know how much money we made that weekend, like in revenue, like hundreds of thousands of dollars came in in a weekend, right? And so we were just trying to deploy that money into servers. Like we burned hardware at Amazon, at AWS. Like we were burning and destroying hardware. We were like pouring tens of thousands of dollars in at a time to try to get new servers spun up. Like it was that kind of an environment where it was not just us, like major internet players, like Zoom was down and Twitter was down and Netflix was down. Like as the pandemic shut down the entire world, everyone went online and we collectively as humans didn't have the resources to keep the servers going, like to keep everything up. So Sandy and I like had our little sliver of people that we were trying to serve, but it was also every other online platform or tool was suffering the same way as us. Those individual clients could not zoom out and see yes. the world as you always see it, Jenny. They were just like, oh, like yeah. just so scared. So it was just a lot to handle that emotion, calm them down and explain why our software was not working for them in this moment, right? Ugh. Do you have a sense of how much you grew in that short period of time? I don't know, number of customers or revenue. 
I know exactly. It was from February to March, 2020, it was 1100%. That was revenue. And it was all that growth happened in the last two weeks. And then I stopped tracking everything. Cause that was just like the it kept least going. important. Like it just kept going just, for months. It didn't matter. Like we were in survival <laughs> mode, you know? Yeah. So the people who thought like, this is going to last two weeks and then we'll be out of it. Once they figured out that they weren't, then they were coming to you. That's right. Why yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, besides the kind of emotional toll, obviously that being inside that inbox must have taken. And so that people understand intercom is a tool that like lives on every page of an app of like ConvertKit or, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, Marvelous now. So it's not just like you have to go to your email, find the email address. It's it's so easy to send a message via intercom that I, I wonder, did you ever think to take it off? Oh, that would have been really bad. Not in that moment. I mean, we were their lifeline, you know, for a lot of people and just to like have paid this money and then just, I don't think I could even have done that, Mm -hmm. but we've talked about it since, you know, as Jenny said from the beginning, like we really want to bring humanity into technology and cutting off that live support, like talking to real people, real humans in live time Mm -hmm. is one of our, I think, really important to us core value for us. But could you actually talk to them? Like, were you able to get to them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we hired like, so, so we went from like the two of us and then two halftime engineers and one halftime VA, essentially. That's what Joe was at the time. We, we hired in the next three weeks, we went to a team of 22 full-time people. That was the scale. Sandy took over the operation side of the company and hired everyone, created manuals, interviewed a bunch of people, created teams and systems. Like we organized and built out our Slack. Like we trained people, like beefed up our knowledge base. All of that was happening like 24 hours a day so that we could be human. I just checked. So only the teachers on our platform and the creators have access to intercom. Our students don't. There's many hundreds Mm -hmm. of thousands of students that are on there that don't have access to us directly. We have closed close to 60,000 support tickets in the last couple of years, like 60,000 conversations. Like it's a business, right? Like it's a whole ecosystem of like interaction that goes on. Like I, I don't know how we compare to other platforms, but I know a lot of platforms that have raised a lot more money than us don't offer human tech support around the clock like we do. Or if they do, I don't know if they get the sort of volume that we have. But that's like a giant job to manage and have people trained to be able to handle those kinds of conversations effectively. Yeah. I didn't even think about the time that it would take for somebody brand new on your team to have the knowledge to answer all those questions. Yeah, that's what I did while she's trying to go find a CTO for us that could work full time and help us get out of this mess. I was like, I hired um, a couple of people who are still with us and wonderful. And I remember just saying like, just do whatever you can just, and I had a lot of in intercom, you can like, you know, write out your answer and like templates. You can just sort of like save it and, you know, I'm just like, organize that so that the keyword was there. And then I started using Airtable and so they could search for words and then find the answer and so on. But I just like shout out to those early members because they just like dove in, like untrained, didn't know the software. Like they just, we all had to work so quickly to figure it out. And, and then like, you know, there's lots of repetitive questions. This particular support team member, Goosey, he's still with us. Like he's incredible. People love him. People write in about him all the time, but he will laugh about those early days where he was just the 
thrown in, like just talk to them, you know, it's like, it's like, do your best, just be a person, like be a human. I think that that's the part. I don't know that I hope people have seen who follow our brand or who interact with our company is that like, we're just actual caring people doing our best and we're showing up fully as ourselves and there to serve. Like it is a very service oriented, humble job to work in technology like this and to serve a group of people like this. That is what we've cultivated. And I mean, lots of positive things came out of March of 2020, but the team that we built, the core team that we still have, it to me is like irreplaceable. It is such a gift. I feel like we're so lucky to have cultivated this group of people or gathered this group of people together that like truly care and serve our customers. And we've all kind of been through this collective trauma. So I don't know, it's kind of bonded us in a way. Okay. Quick question for each of you. Through the first month of this, about how many hours were you working a day? Sandy? We would just get a couple hours of sleep at night. I worked at home then and I just would get up at six, seven work. And then we would swap out like to go eat and we would just work until I don't remember like late. And I just all, remember all it being every waking minute. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like the, it just, every it was a big minute. deal to go to sleep. Like, cause you were leaving yeah. something unmanned uh-huh, at that time uh-huh. and it felt horrible. And you knew that when you opened your eyes in the morning, you'd have another couple, 300 things to deal in, you know, questions in the inbox. So we felt buried and we were hardly functioning. I just remember talking to developers with you, Jenny, and like the bags under my eyes. So, t- you know, that deep fatigue where your brain is hardly functioning. Like like, like when you travel, right? Like, like you've, you've done it all. Like jet travel lag. To your, yeah. It's like just permanent jet lag. Weeks of that. Weeks and weeks of that. Like, I don't even know how we survived mm-hmm. that part physically. Okay. And Jenny, what was the other thing? You were still practicing <laughs> law, but there was something else that you were also dealing with. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. I had and I still have long COVID. So I was one of the earliest cases of COVID in the US. My husband worked at Amazon at the time. I think I can say that. And COVID was sweeping through downtown Seattle. Um, A lot of my husband's team was going back and forth to China sort of on a monthly basis. So we had early waves of COVID in our circle, in our extended circle. And I was very ill early in 2020. And then um, starting one week exactly after this March 13th fiasco, um, I started to develop the symptoms of long COVID, which we didn't know what it was at the time. So it started with a fever and I started with having like burning eyes and a fever. It morphed into kind of over a year of vertigo and dysautonomia, which means like your nervous system is so dysregulated that like you are having the experience of heart problems, but it's not your heart. It's actually like your brain communicating to your heart and sending signals. So I was having like really, really high heart rate. I was weak. And so I was doing this work, which was probably not healthy for me (laughs) working around the clock, but also against the backdrop of what we now know as long COVID. So I was often working from the ground. I was in bed, like I was on calls with our entire team that we just hired, you know, 20 plus people. I'm the CEO of the company and I'm like in bed, barely able to kind of speak, but my brain was fine. Like I luckily didn't have a tremendous amount of brain fog. I just had other issues. Well, so we're not going to go into too much detail about this because Jenny and Sandy have a phenomenal podcast. It's called And She Spoke. It's one of my 
favorite. And I guess I heard it in maybe November of 2022, this episode where you finally talk about it. It's episode number 100. We are going to link it up in the show notes because I don't think I've heard storytelling like this on a business podcast ever. Hmm. But I also remember being in line at security at an airport, just like my jaw continuously dropping, hearing about this experience and thinking the whole time, why is she still working? You said in that podcast, I would go to bed at night and I didn't know if I would make it through the night. It was that bad. Yeah. My heart was not functioning properly. I didn't know what else to do, to be honest. Like, I didn't know what was wrong with me for a long time. I didn't have any real diagnoses. I mean, I had COVID and long COVID sort of diagnoses in April of 2020, um, but nobody really knew what it was. And I didn't have like a diagnosis of dysautonomia, which made me understand what was going on with my heart for another year until April of 2021. So, I mean, what else are you going to do? Like you continue living your life. The world was collectively suffering. Like I didn't have anything else to do. I had an obligation to serve a group of people and to now I had a team to support. Like what the hell else was I supposed to do? I wasn't going to leave Sandy alone in that mess. And I mean, my brain was functioning. So I was going to give whatever I could give. I mean, I remember this one time I was giving a training actually to our co- our coaching clients and I was like having so much trouble breathing. I was so afraid I was actually going to pass out during this like 60 minutes where I was like giving the slide presentation about, I don't even know what it was about. I was training them on something. And I was like, I hope no one notices that I'm actually like struggling to breathe. And I mean, maybe it's crazy. Maybe normal people wouldn't do this, but like It was also a great distraction for me. Like I have a lot of medical PTSD and anxiety, which you can imagine. And it's not helpful for me to sit quietly and like think about being sick. It's very, very unhelpful to like not have something else to focus on. Did anyone put anything in the comments during that training? I don't think so. And then Sandy, what what was your experience of having your business partner go through this while you're in the midst of like the most turmoil you've ever experienced. Yeah. I mean, it was just another layer of complexity and emotion on top of what we were already experiencing. And again, we didn't have the language. We didn't understand fully what long COVID was or that it was even a thing. And she just had this most bizarre symptoms, you know, where we would be talking and she'd be like, I can't, she'd hold her eyes because she couldn't see everything was blurry. She was constantly dizzy. She's like, Sandy, I'm here. I'm just going to lie on the floor. And then she'd be like, holy shit, my heart rate is like, you know, 150, 100, whatever. <laughs> you know, it's just like, what? I still feel really bad and guilty because they, if I was there physically with her, I would somehow do something for her, you know, get her a glass of water, whatever, like do something. But when you're on the other side of Zoom and she's lying on the floor, like you can't do anything. And then we have this like giant problem and situation in front of us that we have to deal with. One single human being cannot deal with it alone. She ended up taking the tech side and hiring out the technology and like the rebuild and everything. And I did the operations with the people and the help docs and the customer service and all the whatever. And I was so scared because in those early days, there was a lot of stories on the news about people like in the hospital put on ventilators. And I was so afraid that she was good. She lived on islands. I I was afraid she was going to be like airlifted 
to Seattle to be in the hospital, like literally unconscious on a ventilator and I'm going to have to deal. And so I had like, I'm going to talk to Kevin. I'm going to talk to our CT. Like, I'm just going to put my people together to help me if that happens, but like praying that it doesn't happen. I think there was a bit of denial of how bad it was for her because I couldn't bear the thought of something happening to her or even her leaving, like just leaving to go on a ventilator. Sounds so crazy to say it out loud. But like I had a backup, like panicked plan, but I had to think that it might just be me at some point. Thankfully, it wasn't. And I literally, you know, Jenny, it isn't normal to do what you did. And most people would be like, I got to back away. Sandy, please take the reins. That's what most people would do, I think. You know, I admire her and am in awe of her of what she did, like quite truly. Like I have a headache and I'm like, Jenny, um, I gotta, I gotta go lie down. She's like, Yeah, no problem. Like, oh, like knowing what she that she went through to keep this company running. I didn't get from your podcast episode, I didn't understand that you didn't have brain fog, but it was like the physical symptoms only, which yeah. are are terrible. Mm -hmm. No doubt. But I also want to say how interesting it is. This is just like sort of a meta thing of, of being a podcaster right now. The first time you two told both stories about the impact of COVID and then also you going through this, the trauma that I felt coming from you retelling the story, it's like now you're just telling it again. A lot of the words are the same, but it's it's almost like because I made you go mm -hmm. through it twice. Mm -hmm. It's it's just a little bit less, less raw. I don't know. Yeah. I was thinking that like I felt the emotion when Jenny was taught the first time we recorded when she was talking, I was like, felt it, you know, physically felt what we were living through. And so I was going to, I was already thinking, I got to write to Claire after and say, thanks. That was like therapy. Thank you so much. Cause oh. it really does feel like that. Oh, wow. Good. Okay. So how are things now? Or, or maybe actually take us to like about a year ago, because I know there have been a lot of changes in the past year. Yeah, things are really good. I would say, relatively speaking, the last year was really hard. Like 2022 up until like November, December was extremely hard for us. So like a lot of companies, we grew so exponentially during COVID that um, in 2022, we really had to decide, do we raise money and try to turn this into like a unicorn company or do we kind of back off and stabilize and ultimately we made the decision to sort of back off and stabilize we right-sized our team so we did let some people go and then the biggest thing though like we didn't really let that many people go we what we ultimately decided to do in November of 2022 was to split our company into two. And it's something that we had thought about doing for years and years. Like our attorney advised us to do this a long time ago, because in order to self-fund our tech company, we had built up this entire course and coaching company on the side. They were still one business. And like in order to really protect our intellectual property on the coaching side, we decided to split split the companies. And so that's like the big outcome that happened. And it was something that we debated for years on doing because we really relied on coaching as a crutch to support the tech company for many years. And I think there was a real fear of if the coaching revenue and the course revenue wasn't coming in, could our software company stand on its own two feet? Okay. I'm still not quite clear on the why of the split. And, and this might be like legal stuff, but how did splitting the companies protect the IP of what is now and she 
Anshi is the name of the Anshi coach? Anshi yeah. Ko. Anshi, Anshi Ko. Ko. Thank you. I knew mm-hmm. I was missing a word. Okay, mm-hmm. Anshi Ko. So yeah, how how did that split actually protect IP? Well, because we do have some investment and I'll let Sandy kind of talk further about it. So part of it is like the coaching, like the systems we've created, the formulas and the frameworks we've created really are irrelevant to the technology. Like they shouldn't be owned by Marvelous, if that makes sense. Like, why would they? So by putting them into their own legal container, it's just Sandy and I that own that. And that company also makes good money. (laughs) Like that work produces good value. And that's now ours alone. So the the tech company is also something that theoretically will be sold in the future. Like tech companies Mm. do get sold. (laughs) Like we won't probably run that company forever. And so when that company sells, if and when, it doesn't take our podcast and our personal work with it. Okay. That makes perfect sense. I, I wasn't, I was thinking about the now and not about potential future. Yeah. It's the, it's thinking forward. And also I think there was a little bit of resentment that we would do really big launches with the coaching company and it would just get absorbed into the software company. And we never saw that money and it would just go to the team or Facebook app, whatever, would just go to other expenses. And it was so muddled. And we envisioned like if we ever were to sell or if we ever were to raise money and someone did due diligence and looked at this, it would be a freaking mess. Like what? You know, what are these giant sales? And in software, there's some really key metrics like churn and lifetime value. And like the lifetime value was all out of whack because it would include a $2,000, $1,800, coaching program, right? So we just wanted to keep it super clean. And also if we have a big launch, I want to take some money. Jenny wants to take some money out of that. And we just never could because it just like disappeared into the expenses of the, of the bigger company. Mm. Okay. So then now are you saying that the revenue from Marvelous pays for marvelous. Exactly. (laughs) That was the purpose. That was the point. Like, of course it should, but so many companies don't run like, like software companies, they'll have 50 million in capital in their bank account so they can operate at a loss. We can't. So 2022 was looking, Jenny, line by line, by line, by line, by line of expenses and taking things away so that we could have more revenue than our expenses. And in COVID, things happen so quickly. It'd be like, I don't have a Zoom, buy a Zoom account. I need to go buy that. Like We just bought whatever we needed to function. And it got us into a little bit of trouble because we our expenses were so high and then our revenue started to decrease because COVID kind of, you know, things kind of normalized. So we were out of whack. So 2022 was just like, let's figure out how we truly make this a profitable company each month, which is unheard of in SaaS. Wow. I didn't know that. I didn't realize that even if it's a little, a small percentage, right, of profit, I didn't realize how uncommon that is. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you look at any non-boots, I mean, there's very few bootstrapped SaaS companies. If you look at any of them, any venture-backed company, right? Like they're undercharging. They're like trying to get market share by charging very little for what they sell, sometimes making things free. And then they're drawing from their investment engine to sort of fund their operating costs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we were subsidizing for a long time our SaaS company with our course and coaching revenue. So we were like our own investors. 
Mm-hmm. You know, there was just never anything written down. There was no deal or there was no like Jenny and Sandy will get paid back by giving $200,000 to the software company this month. Like it was never acknowledged in any way. It was all just jumbled together. So now what we have is we have, you know, a software company that's modeled more like Basecamp or other bootstrapped companies, they do exist. They're just very, very rare. And there's like some reasons and market economic reasons for that. It's partly because software is relatively easy to copy, which is what has happened in our case. And so we have venture-backed companies copycat us and then come in and try to get our customers by offering them really inexpensive versions of what we sell. I would say also inferior versions, but they come and try to like capture the market by being able to artificially price. Mm-hmm. And then they're able to do that because they're subsidized from their venture backing. What do you do to combat that specific thing? Do you just have yeah. to let like say goodbye to those customers that you might have paid to acquire? Yeah. 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 So it's interesting because a lot of them end up coming back to us. Oh. So the way that we deal with that is by offering a superior product with this human experience. So almost no one offers anything close to what we have in terms of like the human touch, which is again, part of our core values. And then we also just frankly have a better product. I mean, we were the first ones, right? Like we have been at this for a long time. So we can see what the market needs. We can see what our customers need and we're extremely responsive to them. So there's like also a benefit of not having to try to like serve shareholders and serve investors. Like we are fundamentally serving our customers and our user base. And so they they notice that like people leave all the time. I want to go get this other cheaper option. And they very quickly realize this is like a sham Big going mistake. on over here. Mm. Yeah. Like they're approaching it like it's a commodity, like you're buying coffee. Like I'm just going to get the cheapest coffee. I'm not going to go to the most extent. And it's not that, you know, and, you know, for example, the storage, like right now, the way we have it set up, you can get an account, create your site and we will store your videos for you. And someone will go over to a competitor who's like way cheaper. And they're like, oh, I have to go buy my own Vimeo account and I have to go buy my own whatever account. And like, there's all these extra costs behind that they didn't realize that they, like someone has to pay for your storage, Mm -hmm. right? So it's either us on our platform through your fee or you have to pay for your own Vimeo storage or Wistia or whatever. And people don't realize that. Like they don't even know the questions to ask. And those are the people that we see returning because they're like, oh, I see. Like you guys have a lot of features that were not included in that cheap plan. Like, yep. When we were together in person, that specific thing, the Vimeo thing really stood out to me because you shared about like how much that expense for you went up, right? Oh my God. But it sounds like you've decided to maintain that expense. I mean, maybe it's gone down because you don't have as many. It has not gone down. I assure you, it only ever goes up. So tell me about the decision to keep that. I mean, that's one decision I know, but like, I'm just super yeah, nerdy yeah. So, and I want to know. So we have a a low priced plan on Marvelous that does not include storage. So that's wow. one way we accomplish that. We give people the option. They can embed from YouTube. Like if mm-hmm. somebody's really wanting to run an online business on the cheap, host your stuff unlisted on YouTube and then embed it, right? There are ways around this. Yeah, I mean, part of it is that we just decided to pay that cost. Like that's part of our core service is for many of our tiers of our plans that we do host video and we transcode it and we do all of the things that make it a really positive experience for people. We don't gate how much content they can put onto the platform. 
it's expensive. Like our costs to supply each individual customer creator with their plan are not insignificant. And I think that like, I'm an environmentalist, I'm an environmental lawyer, and I see like externalities in everything. Like I know the true cost to get that tomato into your grocery store, right? Like nobody thinks about like, how many trucks does this have to go on and how much carbon is that emitting and what had to go into like preparing the soil to grow the tomato? Like my brain just naturally thinks in systems. And so I know that though, however, like we're in the predicament we're in as a human species because most people don't think like that. And I think it's true in software as well. Like people do not consider all of the bits and pieces and expenses and services that go into providing them with a product because they're so used to Facebook or Instagram or TikTok. And it's like, oh, it's free. I guarantee you it's not free. I live next to like an Apple server farm, like a data farm. It's not free. Like it's fields of solar panels and the biggest buildings you've ever seen. And like Facebook's data center is getting built down the road here in Arizona. Like we don't acknowledge the work and the energy that goes into providing the tools and services we use all day, every day. But I'm acutely aware of it. And I try to, that's like, we're not the cheapest game in town because we build those costs into what we sell. Over the years, have you increased the price of like the same plan? No, never. Okay. So that's fascinating because I know that's a huge way that people lose customers, but also they're like, correcting decisions that are no longer yeah. sustainable, right? So then around 120-ish a month for your medium plan, mid-tier. 125. Yeah. Yep. 125. Yep. And has it always been? Yes. Mm -hmm. You said you have the free tier. Was that there in the beginning? Not free, excuse me, no, cheaper. It's a, it's a, yeah, it's a starter plan. That was not there. That's something we've added in the last year and a half. Okay. And then what about, is there anything above the mm -hmm. 125. Yeah, th yeah, there's a pro plan that's 179 a month. Mm -hmm. Um and the solo plan, the mid-level plan you're talking about for 125 is one creator or one teacher. The pro plan is up to 15. So we have a lot of like brick and mortar businesses that have multiple instructors. Yeah, and so is. that's what ramps up the price and then we also have a growth plan and sort of enterprise pricing above that for very very large businesses. Okay. All right, so I'd like to shift gears and talk more about Enshiko because that's the coaching. What are the offers there now? We have two. So we have our first one is a thousand dollar offer and it basically teaches you how to build an audience. So if you want to grow your email list or grow your social media platform, we teach it through the lens of building a body of work and becoming a thought leader and attracting people to you for the right reasons about your thinking and your thoughts and why you're amazing. And instead of just like posting random reels on, on social. And then the second offer is a $6,000 year long program where it is like build the business. And that $1,000 content, it's called Visible. The program's called Visible. Visible is inside of the luminaries, our $6,000 program. So you get everything there, but you get all the coaching, critique calls. We do a lot of like copywriting messaging. We talk a lot about pricing, you know, like all the online business stuff. We also, I think, really come at this from a feminist 
slant. I have certification with Cara Lowenthal of the uh, advanced feminist certification in, in coaching. Um, so, and it's so interesting to me because women, there's so many deep beliefs that really hold us back. We love the idea of building a business, but it's like, okay, but I'm so afraid that people are going to think I'm emailing too much or whatever it may be. So there's this whole other layer of just going through the actions you know, do this, 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 and this. But a lot of women struggle because of the socialization that we've all received. Yeah. I I don't know. I struggle between choosing either just like the way your chemistry on the podcast and that slant of your work that I'm not sure what I like best. Unfortunately, I don't mm -hmm. have to choose. I can just listen. I don't know Cara's work too well, mm -hmm. but I have never heard a business podcast have this feminist slant. Mm -hmm. Every episode you're talking about the patriarchy. Yeah. Huge part of our lives, Claire. Like it, yeah, it, we, we battle it ourselves every day. Mm -hmm. I think that what works is that Jenny has, as you've heard and probably identified, she has such a worldview. She sees the culture. She sees the society. Mm. And I've never thought about society a day in my life. I think about the person. I think about the individuals. I imagine what a person is thinking and she's thinking about the soil for the tomatoes. I'm like, well, what's the farmer going? Like, it's such a different view, you know? And so I'm like, why are you even talking about that? And then she'll say to me, why are you worried about that one person? Like it's, I can't think like she does and she can't think like I do, but it's still both are influenced and recognize capitalism and the patriarchy. Like I can't hear any of our coaching clients without thinking programming. That's what she learned. You know, I can't unsee it because mm -hmm. um, it's every single action we take in our business is influenced by that. And then we have a couple of men in our program and it, it's just night and day what they do. They don't actually have the same just, issues just, at all. Just, just take it. It's so different. That's it's fascinating. Okay. So your two visible and luminaries, mm -hmm. are they for a particular type of entrepreneur, either niche or level or years of experience? Yeah. So we've really done a lot of work with this offer. And the promise now is like, we're going to help you get to that first 100K. We speak to women, although, as I said, we do have some men. It's for women who have online businesses and who are really stuck and struggling with getting some significant revenue. We see a lot of people stuck under 50K and they just can't break out of that. And so we teach a certain formula, starting with how to build a bigger audience, getting new eyes on your work, and then actually being able to price and launch and sell it online. So it's generally for those that are under 100K in revenue. So, you know, I'm like, you want a bigger audience, you run ads. What do you teach right. people to do? Right. So we teach an ad free version, Claire, <laughs> but, but we use ads like, for our own. We use ads and someone could, could amplify what we teach with ads, certainly. But what we teach is invisible is this idea that in order to grow a business on the internet, like you're going to have to go beyond your circle, like your existing circle of people. So you have to get strangers, obviously, to follow your work and start to be interested so like the theory is that you can't have more than, you know, 150, 180 human relationships. Like that's, again, bringing theory in. What can they have a relationship to if they can't have a relationship with you directly? We teach them to build a body of work so that your audience has a relationship to your work and not to you as an individual. And it starts to free you from this pressure to put yourself as your like 
human self out constantly to be judged and evaluated and really to like share your mission, your vision with the world. And that's what you're producing and putting out every week with your content. And that's what you're inviting people to build a relationship to. So just like if you're Brene Brown, people have a relationship to Brene Brown's work, not to her. If you look at her socials and you look at her videos that are on the internet, it is her work that is creating like a profound impact. And there's lots and lots of examples of that. So what we teach people do is to how to craft sort of a platform to build that work from, and then to produce work consistently every single week to use tools like social media and potentially ads as amplifiers of that work to get exposure to the work. But really it's about thinking of yourself as a thought leader, as someone who has something to say, and then doing that from a place of intention and crafting that work week after week and building something that's essentially your legacy. So that if someone never buys anything from you and they only interact with your free content, that they've had like this phenomenal experience and ability to grow from interacting with that work. So for you, Claire, to put you into our framework, your, Please do. <laughs> we would look at your business. So your, what we call visibility vehicle is your podcast. That is your thought leadership. That is your thinking. That is your best work. And all of your fans, your audience listen and interact with that work, not with Claire, right? Like I've heard you talk about how you don't like social media and you don't want it. It's not good for you. And it's working for you because you people are listening to you and following you on the podcast. So you're putting out really highly valuable content every single week. And then you're amplifying it. You're shouting it out to the world through your Facebook ad strategy. We teach the organic where, you know, that's an option, of course. But for people just beginning, they, they just go on to choose your amplifier, which for most is Instagram. And you just like mm-hmm. tell people about the podcast episode, but there's no pressure. A lot of women feel really unsure and unsafe and feel like they have to be super vulnerable and like they have to show everything on social in order to build a business. And we don't think that that is true. You know, I feel like I've been just having this message of yours about the body of work. I've been soaking it up. I think just with osmosis of listening to the podcast and, you know, just even just having you as clients that I have been putting out more episodes about ads because you told me, you told me on one of our calls, your vehicle is the podcast. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. well, on the podcast, I, a lot of times I highlight other people and I've had to do some work about my thoughts about my solo episodes and what other people think about them and yada, yada. If what I do is Facebook ads, but I never really talk about them very explicitly, then I'm doing people sort of a disservice. I'm working on that now. So thank you. I would push back on that, that the body of work doesn't always have to be focused on the service. Like I want to choose my Facebook ad strategist by someone that I understand and connect with and love and am interested in. And that's what your podcast does, right? We hear your voice. We hear your questions. And even though it may not, like we haven't spoken hardly anything about Facebook ads in this episode, right? But if someone's out there listening, like I really like Claire, I really like what she has to say. Like you're showing all that. That's part of your your market. And your values, like your Hmm. your politics and and your values subtly are like also layered in all of the questions you ask your interviewees, right? Like I think that there's just things we don't have to say out loud that become obvious to the listener. And someone's like, okay, she's like me. I want to work with her if I'm going to pick somebody. Got it. 
And yeah, I think that's probably the reason why like 80% of the clients that we've had, not just they've heard the show, they've been longtime listeners, right? I think what I'm hoping to achieve because I have the two offers for somebody to pay like a high ticket price, they need exactly what you're saying. They need to Mm -hmm. connect. They need to share the values and things like that. But for the other offer as well, if I can also sort of shorten the sales cycle a little bit by saying, yes, here, I'm an expert at this. I mean, and I, I've gotten this from Stacey Bayman, you know, who we learned from that, like help people say things even like in a way that people can understand even better instead of like, I used to think that if I actually confuse people about ads by being very high brow, right? Mm-hmm. Let's talk about click-through rates. Let's talk about, mm-hmm. you know, placements or audience that people would be like, oh, well, I just need her to explain it to me mm-hmm. and I'm going to pay her for that. That's not true. <laughs> Mm-hmm. But I have yeah, to I get stop that. myself from doing that sometimes because I still feel that I, I see that thought creeping in. Oh, well, if I just show that I'm smart as fuck, then people will want to learn from me. But that doesn't really convert the sale. Right. I think it's important. This is my latest learning that to see your clients as equals and as whole and complete. And so what you're describing is like pushing them down and raising yourself up. Mm -hmm. And I think for all of us, like just to like consider our client doesn't, I actually heard Stacey say this recently, like your clients are whole and complete and they don't actually need you. Our job is to communicate in a way so that they want us. They want our service. They want yeah, like I am ready and I really want to figure out Facebook ads. I really want to scale. I really want Facebook ads to scale my business, right? And then they're coming from a place of like making that decision because they really want it. And it's not like an, I need it. Like there's no desperation. It's like a clean, like, yeah, I'm ready for this to do this. That's a great point. Okay. So you are participating in the current round of Get Paid Marketing, right? And I'm curious about what it was that made you decide to apply. Well, we had stopped running ads in 2021 when everything stopped working. (laughs) So we have run ads on and off our entire business life, but we had all of a sudden all of our funnels like stopped being as profitable at some point and we decided to not invest in ads anymore and then we also took a lot of 2022 then to like get our shit together figure out our businesses split the companies and by the end of 2022 we were ready to like dive back into ads because they they do work <laughs> like they've been very helpful for us over the years in getting our work in front of new people and so like Claire you're just our go-to person if we want to do anything with ads like I would trust you over anyone else and so given the fact that the climate changed and what was working for us previously stopped working at some point we just wanted to have kind of your expert eye and your team on what we were doing I was just actually looking in the back end of our stuff to look at what you have been doing like I know I talk a lot about Sarah Lucille on this podcast so people get copy and messaging help from Sarah Lucille, but I am actually separate from that. So I was just going in and I was wondering if there was any kind of work that you'd done with her around the messaging that helped you like as you move forward with Anshiko. Yeah. First of all, just to echo what Jenny said, like once we decided that, okay, we got our shit together and now let's go, we're going to do Facebook ads. There's no decision. It's going to be Claire. And I mean, I just often follow what Jenny tells me to do because she's always like the seeker and the collector. She's the salt. And she's like, Claire's going to launch. I'm like, okay, Claire's going to launch. Let's just, let's just do it. Like, there's no decision. Of course, we're going to hire Claire. But what I didn't know 
is how much individual support. Yes, it's group coaching, but it feels like we have our own team. And I remember talking to Sarah Lucille and I said, so how many sales pages can we submit? And she just sort of shrugged her shoulders and maybe this won't be true forever, but she was like, I don't know, there's never been a limit so far. I'm like, oh my God. There's no limit. The fact that she like does such detailed work and she just, you know, videos and talks over the sales page that we submitted. It's just incredible. Like the detail, the level, how helpful it is. But the fact we just have access to that. And I I talked to Joe knowing that we were coming on here and like she just said the same thing that it's just everyone is available to you all the time. Just whatever questions you have, you get them answered. Like it's just like having a one-on-one coach almost. Ooh, that could be an email subject line. Ooh, it could be. Just it could like be a one-on-one coach. It's really true between Sarah Lucille, Kia, who's our ads coach, who Joe has been working with. And just yeah. for clarification, inside Get Paid Marketing, you can come in with anybody on your team. Yeah. So neither of you have uploaded any ads. I listen in on some calls because I like oh, to. That's all I, I have do. her in the background with my camera off. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. We love having you. So Joe is the one who's been doing all of the work with the ads. And I remember seeing her in the Facebook group and it's either me or Kia answering Facebook ad questions in the group. And Kia said to me in Slack, she said, listen, I think Joe is going to give up on these ads before she should Mm because she's tested these things. It's for the quiz. Mm. And she got on a call with Joe. And since then, the quiz ads have been really killing it. Yeah, they're, they're great. Yeah. And I'll just say our ad account got shut down for the first time ever last week on Friday. (laughs) And I know that Kia and then you also, Claire, jumped in and like helped Joe. Joe was on her day off. And all of a sudden, over the course of the weekend, the ad account got turned back on. So I know that that can be like a death sentence for like a lot of businesses. And we just like I didn't even bat an eye. Honestly, I was like mildly annoyed when I got all the emails from Facebook saying our ad account was shut down. I was like, okay, And then it was magically fixed. (laughs) Okay, I I have to say that can't always happen. We don't always have control (laughs) over that. But like we do have, what I recently learned is that we do have the ability as being like the ad consultants on your account. We have a little bit more of a a pathway to Facebook where we can Mm -hmm. find out like, this looks like it was a mistake because that's oftentimes what it is. You guys have Mm -hmm. such an account and such great standing. There were like literally no disapproved ads, I think. And that's why we were able to get it reinstated so quickly. That's not always the case, but we will try. Mm -hmm. Fuck yeah, we'll try because that sucks. You fixed it. So thank you. (laughs) Yeah, no, no problem. I feel like it's between the podcast ads that you have going and the quiz ads. It's just like that stuff is just going now in the background. What are you all working on for the rest of your year? We are actually working on more ads. So we're going to put an evergreen funnel for our $6,000 luminaries program together. We had a really great launch a month or so ago with a really good webinar. So we're just going to go back to what we know worked in the past. And that's just like run ads to the warm audience, lead them to the webinar, you know, and then, you know, an email sequence behind it. So we're just going to set up that evergreen funnel. And I'm kind of excited about it. It's been a long time since we've had that Mm -hmm. and it worked really well. And I think with the price of ads right now, it's like definitely worth testing. Yeah. That was working before. So Luminaries was inner circle and you had evergreen (laughs) ads just to warm going and that worked? Until sort of the pandemic. And then we broke apart 
inner circle and we took one of the courses out and we paired it with our software and we called it launch with intention. And then we had that funnel running very successfully for like a solid year, um, just kind of always bringing in new clients. And so I think we miss just having those big sales coming in without us even having to do anything. So we haven't really tested it with a $6,000 level offer. Uh. So that will be a bigger question, but I think because we're running to warm, it should be worth testing. And we have all of these other ads running to cold audiences to build brand awareness. And obviously people are going through our quiz funnel and then there's, they're pretty warm after that. So we want to play with what to do with those people. So let me ask you about your quiz funnel, just because, I mean, this is literally me just being curious because I've seen some people have success with quiz funnels and others not, or like it takes a long time, let's just say that to become customers. So what are you seeing as people come out of the quiz and like they have their archetype, right? We have pretty high, that sequence on the back end of the quiz has like really high open rates and click-through rates, which is really great. We were unsure of how that would work. I just want to back up about quizzes for a second, just because I am also a teacher on the internet. And I want to just say, I think that part of the reason why so many quizzes fail to produce customers on the back end is because the quizzes are so shallow. There is an entire sort of science that goes into designing a quiz that actually builds up your brand over the course of that experience. Like you have to be doing something that is like useful and different. It can't just be like, what is your Disney princess type of this? Like those things, you're going to get lots of clicks, right? And you're going to get lots of people taking your quiz, but that's not going to turn into anything. Like we have spent a ton of time coming up with these archetypes that actually very directly influence the way we think someone goes about their visibility strategy and their marketing. So Our hope and our intention is that that content is truly warming them up because it's actually useful content. And so we have been getting feedback and emails from people saying like, wow, you're spot on. Like you're in my head. How did you, I I am a collector or I am a luminary. So I think that that does have a lot to do with the success of quizzes. Well, great. I mean, and that's what you said. You said they're coming in really warm and I wanted to know, like, how did you know that? So Mm -hmm. that's. That's awesome. How did People you learn the science? <laughs> a long time ago, I took Ryan Levesque's quiz funnel masterclass, okay. which is super expensive and is very academic. And then I went down my own rabbit hole after that. And so there's some things with the way he teaches that I think are really, really good. He's like the expert on the internet about quizzes, right? Uh-huh. And so there's certain strategies that he really recommends. I mean, we went off the playbook and making hours like very far off, but a lot of like the core principles that Ryan teaches were great. And we incorporated those in. If I were going to learn from anybody on that kind of thing, I would learn from Ryan. I mean, just he's so smart. He's so fucking smart. And you know what? I thought he was like a total dude, bro. And he might be, he looks like one, Yeah. but like when I read his book or like listened to it, yeah. I was blown the fuck away. So yeah, we should. that's what he's like. He's so, you should get him on the podcast. He's the real deal. Like I felt like I was in graduate school watching his <clears throat> sessions in that program. Oh my gosh. I'm going to, I don't yeah. care what the price is. I'm going to pay for it. And like, if it's still around, I don't know. He launches it like once or twice a year. Okay, It's great. cohort based. I actually loved taking that course from him because he gave me the freedom to be more nerdy and like analytical in my t- online course teaching. I was like, 
all right, it's okay that I'm like integrating Picasso into this lesson because like Ryan just like went super into philosophy and that, like, I just, it gave me the freedom to be more of myself. I felt like, well, he's super successful and he can get away with being like this. So like, I'm just going to incorporate more of myself into what I make too. Claire, I have click rates for you. Ooh, because, you know, I get your emails. So I haven't done the quiz yet though, but tell me. Oh, you should. It's super fun. You need to do the quiz. I will, I will. Once they join the quiz, Facebook ad to quiz, um, they get an email with their result. And then we have a sequence behind that. And I don't have the number. So overall, it's a a long sequence, like eight or nine emails, 68.2 open rate and 11.6 click through rate. Wow. And that's a cold ads audience. Yes. Oh, wow. I'm so excited to see how it goes when you put the evergreen funnel. Also, just an idea, in addition to the ads to that warm audience, if it's not finished yet, I don't know, but also just an email sequence. Have you seen inside GPM, the 12 email video? I have to ask Joe. It's our sequence, which is when somebody comes in from an opt-in, not from the evergreen. Mm. It invites them. It's nurture, nurture, like super high value, and then consistent invitations to then join the evergreen webinar. Okay. Okay. They're, They're eventually seeing the pitch and they might see it multiple times. I think what my job will be next on this is like, they're clicking through to the sales page. We're leading them to visible the thousand dollar program uh, and they're, it's not converting. So okay. we were look, last night or yesterday, Jenny and I were looking at the cost. So like Sarah Lucille helped us with that. So we may have to go back. It's not connecting for them, like some of the language. Uh-huh. So the sales page, I think is the problem. It's not the ads. It's not the quiz. It's not the sequence. It's the, when they get there, they're like, huh? So uh-huh. I need to figure that part out. But okay. that's a really interesting point that if it just doesn't work, maybe we do send them to the other funnel. Yeah. Like the same exact sequence. They look at visible, you know, they think about it. And then also that's just warming them up for the next launch as well. Uh Especially if they're clicking over to see visible, then Mm -hmm. they're definitely going to click over to an evergreen webinar invite. It's Mm -hmm. free. Okay. It's more training. It's more value then you know there i assume there will be some kind of urgency yeah. or whatnot yeah um, well, deadline funnel and everything yeah deadline funnel do you have a deadline funnel on the visible page now no there's no time there's no urgency that. at all yeah. yeah okay got it but on the evergreen yes mm-hmm. yeah yeah fabulous before we wrap this up i want to ask you about one thing that has happened more recently that i kind of acted like it didn't impact my world at all until I heard your podcast episode. What happened with your bank? So I will tell my side of this. Things are good. We figured all our stuff out. We're not sleeping three hours a night anymore. Like things are good. And it was a Thursday night and I was at home and I decided to not open up my computer, like a conscious decision. I'm not going to go online. And then Friday morning, I get to my work condo and I was like, open it up. And I see this chatter between Jenny and our COO about like Silicon Valley Bank, which is where all our money is. And I was like, what is happening? And then they had linked to a New York Times article that I read. I was like, holy shit. And Jenny was at a meeting. Like I knew she was like not available. So I am by myself reading this thing. And then I get on Twitter and I go to all the places and I see it happen in live time that the FDIC just shut down SVB, like just shut down. And I was like, anxiety attack. Like I've never, like this could be it. This, we just went through all this and we're just going to lose all our money. And, you know, just, and I'm Canadian. I don't understand us banking. And now I do. And 
it was just so much uncertainty. And I remember Jenny just phoned me. She's like, Hey, hi. I'm like, hi. She's like, are you okay? I'm like, no, like the, the FDIC just shut down SVB. She's like, what? And it just freaking went from there. Like, <laughs> Oh, here we go again. Oh hell. Yeah. So on Thursday, our COO in the afternoon posted like a New York Times article about like all these venture backed companies withdrawing money from SVB. I'll just say like for those of you that aren't in the startup world, like you're kind of required to use Silicon Valley Bank, at least you were for the last decade if you're a startup, because most investors like angel investors and VC funds have like wires set up to go into this bank. Like it's just kind of the accepted bank that you use. And so when we went into our accelerator back in 2015, at the end of that year, we were required to switch to that bank in order to get our initial tranche of investment from the accelerator. Like that was part of the deals. Like, oh, you have to use this bank. The bankers come into the accelerators and they're like fancy clothes. They take you out to lunch. Like it's a whole ecosystem in the tech scene that you use this freaking bank. So everybody uses this bank, including us. And so all of our money is in this bank. We had had other banks in the past too, but we are like streamlining and wanting to have an easier life and less like bank statements to get to our accountant. And so we had one bank and all of our money was in this bank. And so that Thursday night, I read this story and then I was like, huh, like this could be nothing or like they could shut this bank down in the next few days. So I messaged Sandy Thursday night Again, we still like, I think both tend to work at all hours, just like it is just drilled into us. That's just, just watching, just watching. Just what's always gonna wa- I'm always like ready for the apocalypse to happen. And I like, maybe there's a button I can push that can help to prevent it in some way. Like that's the how my brain is. Like I still wake up at three in the morning and grab my phone to check to make sure that like the internet exists. So that's a separate conversation. I probably Every know. night? Not every night, but like oh. randomly. Because uh-huh. I did it for so long where I was like, yeah. wake up at three and dive into stuff. So I now, I was like legitimately a person that slept with my phone in another room until I couldn't. And now I have this problem. Anyway, Thursday night, I was like, Sandy, Sandy, like tapping in Slack. Like, um, are you okay if I go and open another account? Because it's also really hard Whereas we're business partners and we're different nationalities. So I would have to go open a bank account in my own name and not have Sandy on the account. And I was like, is this like, okay with you, Sandy? And I was like, I might go to the bank in the morning and open another bank account. I might go to JP Morgan Chase. Are you okay with that? No response. And I was like, okay. I was watching Sandy. Harry and Megan. Sandy's <laughs> not worried about it. Sandy's wise. I'm a paranoid doomsday thinker. I'm just going to get up and go to my meeting with my lawyer, which I had scheduled. On Friday morning, I was like, I'm just going to go and go about my day. And I go to an art class on Fridays. I was like, I'm just going to like do my natural fabric dyeing and I'm going to be a regular person. And then like I get out of my lawyer meeting and I see all these Slack messages, these DMs. I didn't even read them. And I just like huddled Sandy and I was like, hey, what's going on? And she was like in tears. Like I could hear her crying voice. And she's like, oh, my God, the bank is shut down. And I was like, what? (laughs) And so like all of our money was gone. We couldn't access our bank account. That's my question right there. I don't think I realized when I saw headlines that when a bank folds, people don't get their money 
No, yeah, it's gone. Like we could log in and we could see it for a little, like a little while, like part of Friday, we could see it, but it was all these, like, you have no access to it. Like the federal government is taking over this bank. Watch for alerts about what will happen. You up to 200,000 is insured, but we couldn't get any money. Like luckily we, it was an off payroll week for us because Friday's a shit day to have the bank close. Right. (laughs) So like we didn't miss payroll because there's also all kinds of like fines if you miss payroll in the United States, which like, there's just all these things, right? Even if it's not your fault. So I just was like, okay. So, but like all, you know, we have a big enough company that there's stuff constantly billing. Like we have Heroku billing and Amazon billing and like, you know, all of our software billing and our, I think we have like 175 vendors that are constantly billing our tech company. Like that's in our spreadsheet. Things were bouncing. We were getting like failed charge notifications. And I was like, okay. (laughs) And so I'm like in my car, I'm on huddle with Sandy. I get our COO on. They're trying to make an appointment for me at like any bank in Arizona where I'm currently staying to like go open an account because I'm the only person because I'm the president and secretary of the corporation. So I'm the only person that can open a bank account. And like every bank was busy. There was no banks on that Friday that would even let me go open an account. I was like driving it was like the first day of spring break for my kids. So I'm like late getting her to pick her up when her school's closing. I'm like driving around Arizona trying to find a bank that will let me open a bank account in the instance we could get some of our money out. You know, it's like that kind of thing. Like our money is frozen. Like we can, we can log in and we're see We're going to get some of it eventually, we think. We know we're going to get it. Like that's it's we're under the assured insured amount. So we know it's going to come. But when and where are we going to put it? How do we get it out? When are they going to allow it? Yeah, you're like, like hundreds of thousands of dollars. What do you, you don't know when you're going to get it or where it's going to go. And so. then we have to think forward like, okay, we have to have our money to the payroll company by Wednesday so that people can get paid Friday, which means we have to start the transfer on Tuesday. But Monday, they're like, your bank will resume normal operations, but will it? Like it was yeah. just the uncertainty. And then just the, like, you can't get a bank account quickly. It's Anywhere. very hard, like, especially with a, a company like ours, which is like a Delaware corporation operating as a foreign business in the state of Washington. I was like, do I need to fly to Seattle to go open an account? Sandy, do you need to fly I, in and I was ready to in get Seattle? Like, and we can go open a bank account. It was like that. And then meanwhile, like failed charges, failed charges, failed charges. Like the stories you hear of like Pete founders, like trying to put bills on their personal credit cards, like all of that's real. Like you have expenses like every single day if you're running a company at any size, right? Like, and some of those things you have to pay the bill. Like we have to pay our server bills. Like there are certain bills we have to pay. Like we have to pay our video hosting bills and our <laughs> bill to the company that holds our code base. You know, like you have to pay those bills. You don't go late. Who has room on a credit card? Like, can we get a business card somewhere? It's just insane. So we went through that. The long story short is that like everything ended up working out. We got access to our money eventually. We still had $20,000 missing until about a week ago, interestingly enough, because the first $20,000 that we wired from SVB to like this sort of startup fake bank account that we got opened over that weekend, like disappeared in the ether of the internet for a while. So there was like 20 grand, just like not anywhere for a long time that we just got access to, but it's all worked out. Like wow. it just... It's just nuts, right? And, and and like we had no investors like warning us. Like all the big companies mm-hmm. with the big relationships with VC firms were told to pull their money out Thursday morning, right? So, but we're like, yeah, we're not in the in the know. The other point I want to make with this is like I spent twelve hours on Twitter watching every 
thing that was said and happened and that's not healthy for anyone. But what I did witness, like the comments, like people were like, oh, all those rich billionaire assholes, they can lose their money. It's just like, oh my God, like you don't understand. Like they, people were saying like, just let it fail. Those are all the millionaires, billionaires. They don't need the money anyway. SVB played a role in the bank marketplace where as a woman or a woman of color to go and like, they would understand technology and they would give you a line of credit or whatever you needed or open a bank account because they understood the SaaS model where you couldn't walk into Chase and get that, right? So SVP played a really important role in helping new founders create something that they couldn't get a bank loan for. Yeah, and or so get a personal mortgage, Sandy, too. Like anyone who has investment cannot get a mortgage. I don't, I want to say like all these founders, even if they've raised millions of dollars, it's very hard for them to get a bank loan personally because their bank looks unprofitable on paper. I've been through this myself, the trauma of trying to get a mortgage. You're like, I make a good salary. I have years of experience. I work for a C corporation and yet I can't qualify for a mortgage because on paper, if I've taken investment, which at times we have done, right? Like it looks like your company's failing. So if SVB also was like the personal bank and mortgage bank for a lot of people who started startups. Yeah. And you mentioned to me, Sandy, like also like mm -hmm, residents, right. right? Who are not U.S. citizens. Mm -hmm. Couldn't get the money out. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. They still, I don't know what that status is, but when we were able to eventually take our money out, it was only because we were an American company. The companies that were founded by people from other countries were shit out of luck. And I heard that they were going to change that. I don't know how that ended up playing out. But there was all these like the federal when the FDIC comes in with their insurance, they're like Americans, right? Like we are supporting Americans with this money. That's who's insured. Mm -hmm. So the other thing is like it's going to be so hard now for people who are coming into accelerators, a lot of whom are foreign talent to be able to even open a bank account and start accepting investment and start accepting payments. And it's just you know, we live in a global society and yet our systems and institutions are not really designed around that. And SVB was an exception to that rule. And there were so many companies that, you know, really, really struggled after that because it was like very clear that if they didn't have access to the money, they didn't have any revenue coming in, right? Because they were so subsidized by their, their VC. And so, so many companies failed and it was like, there were so many environmental companies that were doing really great work. So I was so Climate fascinated tech. by this like hatred on Twitter about these horrible people. And it's like, but those horrible people are the innovators of our society and our culture that are creating new companies to change things. And they just lost everything. And so I just wanted to put that out. Like there is another side to that SVB story that a lot of regular hardworking entrepreneurs and visionaries were really sort of cut off at the knees with that collapse and will impact the future ones, as Jenny just said. This is a huge other conversation, but I would love your thoughts before we wrap up. Like, what do you think it is about this fucking society that makes it so that people hate so strongly people that they perceive as wealthy, right? Somebody having a million dollars in investment doesn't necessarily mean shit. I mean, I'll just say, I think that it, it's like kind of a twofold thing. I think that in a lot of ways, we collectively revere people who we see as wealthy or successful because we see ourselves in them. We, we have this like false belief that we can become that. Like <laughs> this is why people vote constantly against their own self-interest, right? Because they see themselves becoming the thing that 
they most likely won't become, they see themselves becoming the 1%. But I also think it, there's the flip side of it, which is just like jealousy, right? Like that we do live in a world that's not fair. Yes, all of the things we've said about SVB are true, like regular companies and innovators and all these things, all these kinds of good, positive, diverse interests are represented in that SVB story too. But the other side of it is it's also people who've had a tremendous amount of privilege who have benefited from banks like this and systems like this, right? So many of the companies and the founders also... Yes, like maybe they're doing great innovation and maybe they're doing great things and maybe they have had their own personal trials and tribulations to get to their level of success. But like as a whole, it is a position of privilege to be a founder of a company. And Mm. so, you know, like who gets funded and what gets to succeed is also like very unfair. And I think that there's something deep inside of us that is like disgusted by that, like as we should be. And so I think we're both like we have the tension of both thinking that will be me one day and also knowing that won't be me and I'm disgusted and it's unfair. Mm. I think yeah. it's like an us versus them classist kind of thing that it's like I'm so poor and they're so rich and they're taking everything. It's just never that cut and dry. And like if they actually looked at all of the things that they used in their life, there's probably a lot of SVB companies in there that they actually relied on. So I just think it was everything now is like such misinformation. It's broad strokes and it just doesn't apply. And it's like they think everyone who used SVB was like Elon Musk or or Zuckerberg. And it's just Mm -hmm. not the case. I'm sure there were some, but it's like the majority were just not that. Anyway, it's an interesting question, Claire, for sure. What that makes me think of, Sandy, is what you said about, you know, people not really realizing how many of those companies they probably use on a regular basis is also what you said about like your clients in COVID, like not being able to zoom out, Mm -hmm. right? It's that just lack of awareness. And I've also heard you to speak on that on your own podcast about like sort of the daily struggles of running software business when it comes to the customer service. Yeah. I think customer service in general is like a hard job, but in software, because of the way the industry has evolved, people are so used to having like very sophisticated technology available for free. And so they're the demand when they're paying for something, like the expectations are so out of whack. It's like astonishing to me. And the reason it's not free. Facebook is not free, right? As we all know from like yesterday's announcement that you can file your claim for payments from Facebook, like Cambridge Analytica happened, like your use of this platform did not come at no cost to you. And that is true for everything you do. It comes at the cost of your privacy. It comes at the cost of your attention. It comes at the cost of like impacts to young girls and their self-esteem. And like we can list the costs. They're just not directly related to your bank account this very moment. And so I think we just have such a freaking hard time understanding that. And because we run a paid software platform, there's just this expectation that it is supposed to be so advanced and so sophisticated and so wonderful. And it is, it is those things, but it's not, we're not Google, right? So you're not going to have the same quality of a live stream maybe that you would get on YouTube because we are not one of the wealthiest companies in the world that is like supporting itself through AdSense and AdWords revenue, like because everything you look at is ads now. Like there's just a disconnection, I think, between expectations and what is realistic. And I don't know that that's ever going to change. Like I think our 
culture has evolved this way. And uh, sadly, after being in tech for this many years and running a SaaS company, like I don't see it getting really any better. Hmm. So I'll give you the individual. So that was like the big zoomed out, like the individual person uses their Instagram live stream or Facebook live. This is years ago. And they see whatever experience and they come to this paid and they're like, but this is worse than Facebook live or YouTube live. And it's like, but wait, and I don't, I don't think that's true now, but they would compare us to the free. I think like they think that the tech just stops at their screen. Like there's no behind the scenes. It's just there. You click a button, it's uploaded. You, why is it taking so long? You know, Facebook, I can do this in one second. And it's like, they don't have any ability to zoom out as Jenny has just described. It's just like, I have my screen and it needs to work. And all this other stuff is for free. So why would I have to pay and not get the same service, quality, whatever? Like mm-hmm. we don't have 50 engineers. like Or 5,000, <laughs> like what know, we get and- compared to. I, I don't know. I think that's just part of the job of having a business is providing that education and doing it in a fair way. And like, actually, I think we help ourselves by being very humble publicly when we talk about what we've made. And that's, that is what it is. Like we've made decisions not to raise money in a certain way, or we haven't been able to in some cases, right? Like to compare us to competitors. And so like, no, we can't do the things that they do. You're right. Because mm-hmm. we don't have $500 million in the bank. And do you explain that or does your customer service team? No, like- not directly, but oh, we okay. say it if people listen to us. Yes. So no, I know the- you say it on your on podcast. The- Like there are times when I want to just to explode and like they'll compare us to Kajabi and they literally raise 550 million. And so they want something. I want it like this, you know, whatever. And I'm like, oh, oh, oh." my boyfriend said that it's really simple to add this like new page feature. I'm like, oh, we get that that. a lot. My husband is is a software engineer and he said you could do this really easly. It's not much work. It'll take you a few minutes. Not much work. It won't take you very long. It's not for you to decide. It's not for your job to decide. That's where I get really resentful, you know, and you just have to like calm down. They don't know. They don't understand. But on the Kajabi side, I want to add that we have a constant inflow of people coming from Kajabi onto Marvelous. So there are things that we do that are fundamentally better. But it's just like you vomited out a thousand features because you have unlimited amounts of money. And like Mm -hmm. we have to be very judicious and careful about what we build and how we build it because we have limited resources. To me, I see that. I see the advantages of it. It's not just like make a big complicated thing that does lots of stuff, right? And hope that some of this works. Like we have to be extremely careful. So there's benefits to our side of it too. Just to answer your question, Claire, we do have a saved response that we have given our support team that they've used for years and years, which is like, we are a female founded, primarily bootstrapped startup. We're like staffed six days a week around the clock with real human beings. And we're here to support you the best that we can, but we're unable to always accommodate every request. We do have a saved response. And I think people respond to that a lot and say, okay, thank you. I didn't know that. Or thank you for letting me know. Or I'm really happy to work with a company like yours. Yeah. So I think part of it is education. Yeah, that's great. Ladies, I just want to thank you so much for your time, for your openness, for your incredible podcast, which I love so much. Where can people go and give you money? Well, I was not expecting that. Oh, no. I asked that at the end of every episode. I I was expecting it. So Claire, 
If they want to teach on the most stunning, stylish creator platform, if they have an online course or a group coaching program or a membership, we are the best in the industry at memberships, or they do private one-on-one coaching, really anything, or they do punch card drop-in dance classes, they can come to heymarvelous.com and sign up for as little as $39 a month to teach online with us. Just to add to that, I think we are the best platform for any, we run our whole entire coaching program on Marvelous, including free webinars. Everything is done for coaches and for teachers. We are the best on the internet. So just tell me real quick, what don't I need when I get on Marvelous? What can I stop paying for in my business because I'm paying for Marvelous? Zoom? Uh, yeah. You have to have your Zoom. Oh, no. Account. Yeah. You have to have a paid yeah. Zoom account. Oh, just or or we have built in, we have built in live streaming, but a lot of people choose to use Zoom because of the Brady Bunch screen. The Got collaborative it. Okay. Screen. But do I yeah. need Zoom webinars? No. No. Okay. And do I need Sam Cart? No. <laughs> yeah. I know. I still pay them money. What about ConvertKit? You would meet ConvertKit beginners, beginner online businesses. Um, and folks sort of in the first year or so wouldn't need ConvertKit yet because we do have email marketing built into the platform, but it is not like a giant email marketing platform with all the bells and whistles that you're used to with ConvertKit or MailChimp. We have a direct integration with both ConvertKit and MailChimp so that they kind of work seamlessly together. What about something to build my sales pages, my opt-in pages, things like that? We have all that. And oh my God, because that's like I the actually, most expensive thing I pay for. I actually should tell you that yes. last week we released the first AI-driven sales page creator. So when you build a product oh. like a course or you put together a coaching program on Marvelous, you just have to title it, give it a few sentences about what it's about. You click one button, generate page, and our magic AI genie goes in and crafts your entire sales page, does the design the imagery, the copy, everything. It's obviously a draft and technology is getting better constantly, but it's taking best practices in sales page copy and design and writing and drafting your entire sales page and making it within about two and a half minutes. Oh my gosh. I just want to go and try that out. That's so cool. Okay. Everybody go get off Kajabi because seriously. Also so freaking expensive. Yeah. Well, I actually don't know how much Kajabi is, but um, sounds like it's really freaking expensive. And then also if if they want to join Visible or Luminaries, where should they go to find out about that? Website is andshe.co and we have both of our programs there. Build an audience, build a business. It's all the information is there on our podcast. Yes. The podcast is And She Spoke. And then also on Instagram for And She Co Mm -hmm. is the coolest grid I've ever seen. Is that still there? Yep. That's our okay. designer. We just decided that, or Jenny decided, this is her idea, that we just do a nine grid and the algorithms promoting reels and video. So we just like do our messy stuff over there and keep this grid branded and beautiful. Beautiful. I mean, we will link up definitely to that in the show notes just so people can see and then follow and go watch all the reels and good stuff. Uh, But I am definitely copying that idea to write. We don't make reels, we run ads. That's going to yes. be my grid. Yes. You should make that really beautiful. That would be awesome. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. I got it. I just got to get it done. I need a designer. Okay. Thank you so much, ladies. This has been wonderful. Thank Thank you, Claire. Claire. Loved it. Hey, I wanted to thank you real quick for tuning into the show and listening all the way to the end. 
If you need them, we got all the links in this episode's show notes, which you can find over at clairepels.com slash podcast. If you really enjoyed today's conversation, make sure to subscribe to the show and get new episodes downloaded as soon as they come out. If you're an Apple fangirl like me, I'd really appreciate it if you open up the podcast app on your phone. In fact, you're probably listening from the podcast app and just leave a super quick rating or review. Your reviews tell iTunes, yes, this is a good podcast. Share it with others. It's worthwhile. And that can help me and my guests reach even more ears. So that's it for today. I'll be back soon with a brand new episode. But until then, it's time to get back to work and get ourselves paid.